Before the homily, I want to give an update in the wake of the July motu proprio of our Holy Father, Pope Francis, that put limitations on the Holy Mass using the Missal of 1962. Our Archbishop responded by gathering the group of priests in the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City who say the traditional Latin Mass to hear our experiences and input and concerns. It was clear he intended to be generous, and his official response to the motu proprio, by means of his own decree just a couple weeks back, has indeed been very generous. The Archbishop has granted permission for those priests and those parishes that already offer the Mass to continue to do so. I have already made my request to have permission to continue offering this Mass, and the permission was granted immediately. We can be thankful that our Archbishop's decree, establishing in diocesan law how the Pope's motu proprio will be enacted, has been one of the more generous responses of a bishop in this country. In fact, I think it is noteworthy that most bishops in this country have been generous in their responses and not at all restrictive, and most have indicated that it is not their experience at all, that traditional mass communities and their dioceses are somehow divisive or harming the unity of the Church. In fact, precisely the opposite. As our own Archbishop noted, traditional mass communities in our diocese have been a source of grace and life for our local church. We give thanks to God for the Archbishop's response, and we continue to pray for him and his leadership here. Today's epistle reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Galatians. Brethren, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are contrary one to another, so that you do not do the things that you would. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are fornication, uncleanness, immodesty, luxury, idolatry, witchcrafts, enmities, contentions, emulations, wraths, quarrels, dissensions, sects, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I foretell you, as I have foretold to you, that they who do such things shall not obtain the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is charity, joy, peace, patience, benignity, goodness, longanimity, mildness, faith, modesty, continency, chastity. Against such there is no law, and they that are Christ have crucified their flesh with the vices and concupiscences. Continuation of the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Glory be to thee, O Lord. At that time Jesus said to his disciples, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will sustain the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say to you, be not solicitous for your life, what you shall eat, nor for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than the meat, and the body more than the raiment? Behold the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor do they reap, nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not of much more value than they? And which of you, by taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? And for raiment, why are you solicitous? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They labor not, neither do they spin. 
But I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed as one of these. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more you, O ye of little faith? Be not solicitous, therefore, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the heathen seek. For your Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Seek ye therefore first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things shall be added unto you. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. It is a reality of life and a truth proclaimed in God's word that man experiences a civil war within himself. As St. Paul says it, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are contrary to one another. The material world, including our flesh, was made good by God, yet it is marked by sin. And so the flesh, after the fall, battles even against the spirit to find its place and to establish its dominion. In the civil war that is within us, the flesh can seem stronger or better armed than the spirit. After all, isn't it a common experience that the flesh seems to win, to get its way? Don't we experience frustrations and worries in life when we face the reality of our own sinfulness? But upon deeper reflection, is it really true that the flesh is stronger than the spirit? Might it be, rather, that the flesh is more savage than the spirit? Might it be true that the flesh has more to prove than does the spirit? A more thoughtful evaluation of our civil war reveals, I think, that the flesh in its fallen nature is like a loosely organized troop, armed with some weapons, yes, but trying to exert its presence and influence on a larger scale, battling in a more frantic way. Perhaps we might even call the fallen flesh a terror cell of sorts, organized and able to inflict damage to be sure, but frenzied and struggling to exert a stability and endurance it will never have. If the flesh seems to be victorious in this civil war, is it really true that it is more powerful? Or rather, is it that the spirit, being more eternally established, adopts a longer and wider vision, one that can afford something akin to patience or a more measured response to the fight? After all, when you know that you are the victor, as the spirit knows, you can tend to live with or suffer the blows of a weaker enemy, knowing that you can sustain some inconvenience and harm, because you know the weaker enemy will not have the upper hand. By faith in baptism, we have been washed clean of the eternal consequences of sin and given the possibility of the inheritance of eternal life, that is, given the possibility of living in the ultimate victory of the Lord, where flesh and spirit are harmonious. But in the meantime, in the campaign or the theater of battle that is this life, How are we Christians to understand the reality of our experience of the flesh and the spirit lusting against one another? And more importantly, what are we to do about this civil war? By maintaining the life of grace, especially in a proper sacramental life, we can faithfully take part in the battle that is our lot in this life. Our battle strategy has two basic foundations as regards the flesh and the spirit. 
One, while fallen flesh will not ultimately win, we need to take its savagery seriously and train it under discipline to live in greater freedom and conformity to holiness. And two, while the spirit is ultimately victorious, we need to rouse it from slumber and its tendency to dismiss the attacks of the flesh so that we strive with greater zeal and eagerness to live according to the spirit. Penance and mortification are our practical responses to this twofold battle strategy. We complete penance out of justice for our sins, and we undertake mortification as a response to the call of prudence. Penance and mortification become the duty of every Christian who is not foolish enough to pretend to be out of the reach of concupiscence. In the gospel, the Greek wording is stronger than our English translation can communicate. Rather than a message that no one can serve two masters, it is more like no one can be a slave to two lords. When we focus on grasping, possessing, and controlling our own stability in this life, we are permitting the flesh to have the upper hand. We are thereby serving mammon, that Aramaic word with a negative connotation, meaning money or wealth. The gospel highlights some of the most basic elements of life. We are not talking about fanciful things here. No, it is more basic. Do not worry over what you will eat or drink or wear. Do not worry about the future. This is such a basic lesson, but such a foundational aspect of the faith. Faith can refer to an intellectual assent, but it can equally mean trust. Trust is a faith that has practical implications for how we live. The Lord's words in the gospel are meant to recall for us who we are in this battle of life. Namely, we are God's children, and we are called to live in the freedom of the children of God. We are worth more than the smallest of creatures, yet even they are cared for by God. We are being called to a radical trust in God's fatherhood. And when in our weakness and frustration with our own flesh, we tend to listen to the lies that make us hopeless, we are called to have hope and trust in God's working. We have this hope and trust because we have been united and incorporated into Christ. As members of the church, we are united to the Lord as bride to bridegroom. As members of Christ's body, we are united to our head. Thus, in the introit of this Holy Mass, when we cry out to God, our protector, and ask him to look on the face of thy Christ, this is our face too. And in a mystical way, we are crying out to God to look upon us with that same favor and protection. We cry out to a heavenly father who cares for us, and who invites us to trust in him. We have confidence that when our Heavenly Father looks upon us, he sees the face of his Christ, battered and wounded, yet glorious and victorious. He sees the suffering and crucifixion of his Son. He sees his resurrection to newness of life. And the Heavenly Father responds, such that we are withheld from eternal harm, and guided to what is good for our salvation. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.